0: Thanks, George. Awesome first job. That was pretty great. It's really great. Hey, I'm going to... Um, I, first of all, I love that Joyful Noise song. Has, that's one of my absolute favorites. But I'm going to take the energy level down a scotch because what uh, we're going to start out this morning before the message is that we're going to just take some time as the body to um, acknowledge and to mourn the horrific events that are happening around the world. And uh, the, the situations that are developing and have been developing and ongoing around the world today, and there are, there are many. There are more than I can mention here, so I'm counting on you too to know, to carry in your heart uh, these kinds of things, but of course, there's that the devastating situation of folding in the divided land of Israel and Palestine. There's the war in Ukraine. There's our ongoing gun violence here in the United States. There have been earthquakes, droughts, floods, fires. We see refugees fleeing danger, hunger, persecution. And we see that always the people who suffer most are the poor, the children, the neediest, and the powerless. So I'm inviting all of us to just sit in silence for a few moments and just mourn or grieve or carry in your heart before the Lord whatever situation you've been thinking of or that... um, comes to mind, but the scripture tells us that we are meant to mourn with those who mourn. And so for this morning, just for a few moments, we're going to hold pain, grief, and the difficulty of it is sometimes to uh, love both our neighbor and love God in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in prayer. You are our hope and our rescuer. We've been brought to this place by devastating headlines and news. We lament the escalation of violence in the world. We lament the suffering and the lives lost in wars and from disasters, both man-made and natural. Our hearts break for those everywhere who have lost homes and loved ones. We pray for peacemakers the world over, for those who work in lands, and for people who have endured generations of trauma. We pray for rescue workers and humanitarian workers who are there for those who have lost homes and livelihoods. We ask your forgiveness for the many times we have chosen to look away and do nothing, when we have contributed to outrage or sought solutions that mean some will prevail at the expense of others. We ask for your help, Lord, your presence, and your guidance in leading us in ways that respond, that bring restoration reconciliation, and wholeness. For shalom, a peace that brings wholeness to everyone. We pray for courage to be the peacemakers, to be the children of God as we bend toward the suffering around us rather than look away from the pain. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name, amen. Thank you for doing that with us. well, uh, today is our third message in our Trinity series. For those of you who were here last week, hey, thank you for coming back. <laughs> um, I wanted to mention a little bit about our braided river image. If you weren't here last week we are there's no good metaphor there's no good analogy for the Trinity so uh, what we thought that might be helpful in just talking about this, for this series, is this geological thing called a braided river, which starts high in the mountains where God is, carries down nutrients, sediment, gravels, rushes down the mountain, and when it hits the level plain, it slows down, and all the sediment, the nutrients, they, 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 they fall out of the slower moving water, and they create these islands, and it's A braided river is ever-changing. They're almost a half a mile wide. You can stand on one side of a braided river and not even be aware of all the water and the rivers that are part of it. One river that looks like many rivers. So it's a good analogy, sort of, for the Trinity. It's a good analogy for the church history that has brought us to this place as different people have spoken into this faith that we carry. So that's our image of the braided, why we chose this one. Um, And then, of course, last week, uh, no, Brian started off with an intro two weeks ago, uh, gave us a great intro into the Trinity. Then last week, I gave you a pretty extensive history lesson, and um, we're going to do a little bit of that today, uh, but I'm also going to, we're going to kind of unpack the Nicene Creed. I blew it. I did not get my notes submitted for the app so that you could read the Nicene Creed on your app. But the ushers have a copy if you would like to have a copy so that when we get to that part, we don't have to jump back and forth from slides. So let's see. We're ready for the map, I think, John. Yeah. So last week in our history lesson, we went through the 0 to the 100s, the 100s to the 200s, almost up to the 300s here. Um, And that's where this map is now, the green area. The purple and the green in the early 300s is the extent of the Roman Empire. You can see how much it's grown since the last time we looked at it, right? It's gotten to its largest size by conquering more lands and more people, and in doing so has become incredibly unwieldy and difficult to manage. Because conquered people don't like being conquered. And the people on the other side of those colors would like to come in and break up the Roman Empire and get their lands back. And so the army was stretched to cover all of that external border. Uh, In the West, the Goths and the Franks, a part of modern-day Germany and France had actually retaken a huge chunk of the empire and had created an independent empire of Goths and Franks within the Roman Empire, and the Romans did not like that. Uh, The Persians in the east had also made incursions into the Roman Empire. And so to pay for this ever-expanding army that is constantly having to quell uh, riots within the conquered areas and to keep armies away from, they had to uh, raise taxes, keep making the army bigger. Um, Taxes were so high that upper class people fell into middle class, middle class people fell into lower class, and of course the people at the bottom, as always, suffered the most and starved. And there was a general feeling that the glory days of the Roman Empire were behind them. And then a man named Diocletian became emperor. And he had a plan to restore Rome to greatness. So first of all, he divided the empire into four geographical areas so that it would be easier to manage. There was an admin regional empire, emperor over each of the four areas. Diocletian remained top dog, and in fact, he was over one of the four. But you can probably guess that he created some future problems for himself by doing this. The second thing he did was to bring back the worship of the classical Roman gods and goddesses of antiquity. In his mind, Rome was weak because it had lost touch with that old-time religion, and enemy number one were the Christians. By this time, there were probably between 2 million and 5 million Christians throughout the empire, which makes them still a very small minority. However, there were now Christians in government positions. There were Christians in the army. The army had waived the requirement. It was so desperate for soldiers. It had waived the requirement that you had to worship other gods in order to be part of the army. Uh, so there's Christians in um, kind of throughout the empire in different positions. So Diocletian, he needs someone to blame for the empire's woes. And Christians are the obvious people to target. So first thing he did was to purge all Christians from government positions. And then he got rid of the Christians in the army. And then he turned on Christians absolutely anywhere in the empire. He destroyed places of worship, which were usually homes. He burned books, all of the Christian writings. He imprisoned, tortured, and killed church leaders. There had been empire-wide persecutions in the 250s, but this one in the... um, And there had always been sporadic, localized, very small persecutions. But this one under Diocletian in the early 300s was the most severe, the most repressive, and the most dangerous. Because Diocletian wanted to exterminate Christianity by exterminating Christians. The Orthodox Church in the East says that Diocletian even put his own wife and daughter to death because they were either Christians or they sympathized with Christians. Christians went into hiding. Some obtained fraudulent legal certificates that said they had sacrificed to the Roman gods and goddesses, and so therefore they didn't have to be killed. Neighbors found it convenient to out their Christian neighbor if they wanted that bigger house or uh, that business. So Christians were uh, easy targets throughout. It was a very, very ugly time. And then Diocletian's strategy to make the empire govern- governor. A bull, did I get that out? (laughs) It backfired on him because each of the guys in front of one of those provinces thought to himself, why do I have to just rule over a quarter of the empire when I could possibly get the entire empire? And so, boom, there's a four way, 10 year civil war in the Roman Empire. And now you have to go back to, I think it's high school, world history. Who won this battle? Who came out on top? Constantine. This is in about early 320s. He won a decisive battle that he had to win, that he was not expected to win. He was expected to lose. He won this decisive battle by his understanding of going to an oracle saying, I need some advice about this. The oracle said, hey, why don't you put the sign of Cairo, the sign of Christ, on your banner? So Constantine did it. He won miraculously this battle. And when he became emperor, conquered the whole thing, he declared it was the Christian God who gave him victory. And from then on, Constantine relied on the Christian churches and Christians to ensure the well-being of the Empire and his own reign. He felt that if he kept the Christians happy, he could stay in power. It's not clear if Constantine ever, ever was a Christian. Uh, There's nothing about his day-to-day life that would make you think he was, but on his deathbed, he was baptized. But he did do, he's hedging, making sure, Uh, he did do a lot to promote Christianity. I mean, a lot. For all the churches and buildings that had been destroyed in the decades prior, he had them repaired. He paid money, lots of money, to have lavish churches built. He made Sunday a weekly holiday free from work. He allowed churches to inherit land and money or other things from Christians who died and wanted to will their stuff to the church. He set himself up as the head of the church. And, of course, now this means that all church Leaders have to deal with Constantine and stay on Constantine's good side. So some people say, and it's not a binary choice, but that's, we always make one. Some people say Constantine was the best thing that happened to the church, and other people say Constantine was the worst thing that happened to the church. So... Clergy would have to come to him all the time with problems. Hey, this bishop, I don't like what they're saying. Or, hey, I'd really rather be bishop of this bigger church over here. Constantine was doing a lot of church management and stuff. And he was always trying to have to settle a dispute, personality conflict, a theological conflict of which he knew nothing. But they were constantly coming to him. So that brings us to this. This next slide, which hopefully is a map there. Yeah, same one. Do you see Egypt? Do you see the city, Alexandria in the purple? Okay, Alexandria was one of the first big churches, even before Constantine. The church in Rome and the church in Alexandria were the two biggest, most powerful churches at this time. There's a guy in uh, this city of Alexandria, a church leader, young guy, totally cool guy, uh, his name is Arius. He's very charismatic. He's a great speaker and teacher, super popular with the community, but there's a problem. Arius taught that Jesus, the Logos, was a creation of God's, and there was a time when the Logos was not. Jesus, the Logos, in Arius's mind, is the most glorious of God's creations, and on a different level from the other creations of God, like us and angels. But he's definitely not the same as God because then we would have two gods. So Arius is trying really, really hard to maintain monotheism and also maintain that Jesus is something unique and special. And so uh, to do this, he felt he had to make Jesus less than God to deny the divinity of the Son. So Arius had a bishop over him by the name of Alexander, This guy was appalled at Arius' teaching. And he banned Arius from teaching, but Arius just moved to another location and kept going. Alexander was a good leader, but he wasn't the best theologian. And so he's trying to clean up the, the theological mess that Arius has left behind. But Alexander just makes it worse because he's stressing the deity of the Logos. He's stressing the deity of Jesus. And he's also saying that there's no difference between Jesus and God, that they're the same. So he's either saying there's two gods, or he's saying there's no distinction at all between the two. And so he's just muddied the waters. And all now all over the empire, church leaders are beginning to argue, to take sides. They're condemning each other. And Constantine was sick of it. In his mind, it was just a little tiny disagreement over a little tiny detail And he wanted the problem solved So he thought if he could get everyone in the same room And they could talk about it Then agreement would happen So he paid for all these important church leaders Bishops, presbyters, deacons He paid for them all to go to the city of Nicaea Again in the purple, right below the Black Sea It's a city in modern day Turkey Uh, Go there, hash it out 300 church leaders came and Constantine oversaw the proceedings. Now I want you to try to imagine this. Just a few years later earlier than this, everyone in that room would have been in mortal danger from the empire. The government had tried to kill them, purge the empire of Christianity. Many people in the room in that room had been imprisoned, tortured, uh, and even disfigured from their ordeal, their families and their friends and their coworkers had been killed by the empire. So imagine how head-spinning this experience is. They must they come invited to sit before the empire, discuss weighty theological issues at the empire's expense. I'm sure they were astonished, skeptical. skeptical? Gratified at the same time. So they were in Nicaea for three months, from May to end of August. And no surprise, it turns out that trying to define the relationship and nature among Father, Son, and Spirit was incredibly difficult. Especially when the people in the room did not all speak the same language. And that Eastern Christians and Western Christians emphasized things differently And they had different ways of looking at the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And, of course, sometimes when you're in a room and you're trying to get something important done and you believe really strongly about what you believe, when your sole purpose is to get your point of view across as the point of view, or your sole purpose is to refute a particular point of view you aren't really capable of listening or seeing the positive side of your counterpart's position. And you certainly have a lot of difficulty coming out with a statement that everybody agree, uh, agrees on. One of the significant differences, though, the dip- obstacles, was the language. So I've got a map. I gotta, There we go. The red side of the empire spoke Latin, And the blue side of the empire spoke Greek. Uh, And so that was a big deal. Because in the early days of the empire, around the time of Jesus, everyone in the Italian portion spoke Latin. But people were also fluent in Greek. Uh, Nearly everyone spoke some Greek, and educated people could read and write in Greek. Greek was a little bit like English is today, and how French was in the Middle Ages. It was kind of a universal language. But that all and of course all of the New Testament writings and all of the early writings of the church are in Greek. Uh, but by this time, there have been the empire's huge enough, there's been enough going on that very few people who's who speak Latin also speak Greek. And they definitely do not read or write in Greek. And so all of these uh, discussions had to be translated for each other. And you, uh, if you speak more than, here's my favorite joke. What do you call a person who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call a person who speaks one language? An American. They love, (laughs) anyway. So you know how hard it is to translate. (laughs) But the other thing to remember is that language shapes us. We aren't really aware how much language shapes us, but the vocabulary that we have available to us helps us. It kind of defines the way we see the world. Latin was and is a great language for making laws. It's a great language for logic and classifying things. Saying something is this, but it's not this. And scientists use Latin today uh, when they come up with scientific names for things because Latin is clear and and uh, there's you it's not a muddy language. <laughs> Greek is a actually fascinating language. It's there's a lot more precision in Greek, but it, precision is for philosophy and concepts and ideals, things that are hard to pin down. Um, So, when I say there were language obstacles, there were big language obstacles. Well, Constantine thought that this council would want to come up with an acceptable agreement, and it would be fairly easy, but the clergy had different ideas. Each of the viewpoints wanted their version to be accepted and the other version's of what the Trinity could be denounced. Now, it did become apparent fairly early on that the views of Arius would not prevail. Everybody was pretty, well, except for the, uh, they call it, when I say it's the Arian faction, that's A-R-I-A-N, not the same thing as what happened in World War, yeah. but it came, became very uh, obvious that the, that Arian faction was not going to be able to get their point across. But what the meeting did clearly show was that the East and the West uh, viewed, and basically I, when I say that, I mean the Latin and the Greek side, viewed the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit very differently from each other. The West saw three co-equal persons of the Trinity, mostly. But the East felt that since the Son and the Spirit do what the Father asks them to do, go where the Father wants them to go, the Eastern Church felt there was like a hierarchy in the the Trinity. Well, finally, Constantine couldn't take it anymore. It's like three and a half months of... He doesn't even know what they're talking about. And he's all like, you've given it your best shot, we're done here. So they quickly (laughs) agreed... On something. And I'm, this, what I'm, if you have in your hand, this is not what they agreed on. So you don't have to refer to what's in your hand. But this is what they agreed on. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. One Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, those words right there. When the Arian people heard very God of very God, they're like, we're, we're done. That was the one. That was the sentence. Uh, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, Uh, We may not have time to talk about the underlying bits here this morning, but if if you want to do the conversation later, I can maybe clarify some of those things. By whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. One sentence for the Holy Spirit. And then, the weirdest part, a curse. But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. (laughs) So the Arian faction clearly understood: we, we're done. Now, most of you who are familiar with the Nicene Creed, you, go, you see this, you go, wait, that's not the Nicene Creed I learned in church, if you ever did learn one. And a lot of people were very unhappy with it. It didn't say all of what they wanted to say, and they did, certainly didn't like that tone at the end. That's <laughs> not really what, not the best marketing thing. Uh, and so 50 years later, on their own, they got together together. To talk about it again, we had the whole east-west thing, and so they came up with what I'm. I'm going to read it, and um, some of you, if you have the handout, uh, you have it with you, and if you don't, oh, Brian has lots over there. If you, anybody want the handout, Brian will give it to you. <clears throat> So, this is what they hammered out. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He, crucified, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the, to life in the world to come. Amen. We call this the Nicene Creed, even though it wasn't created in Nicaea, but it's to honor the fact that it's, it's, it follows on the original uh, meeting in Nicaea. And as I said, it was created about 50 years later. It was uh, after the dust died down from the brouhaha of the original consul. And we owe this statement in large part to three men known as the Cappadocian Fathers. These it was two brothers and their best friend. They were brilliant theologians. Two of them had really good people skills, one of them not so much. Uh, but they spent the decades in between the two creeds, because they were very young men at the first time. They spent the decades in between, working tirelessly all over the empire with clergy, educating them on the importance of why we need a creed, what needs to be said. They were great listeners for listening to the concerns of people, and they were amazing at developing language to use when teaching about the Trinity... And some of the language that they used then kind of died out in the West, but it has become very influential in the church today. So I'm very fond of this creed, as many of you know, and I want to walk through it with you. And so that's, we're going to try to figure this out between your handouts and what's going to be up there. But as you notice, or may have noticed, each section of the Creed de- describes the work of one of the persons of the Trinity and states in a positive way the tenets of the faith. And it does so in a way that eliminates or negates any alternate or heretical understanding of each person of the Trinity. So it begins by stating there is one God. Christianity is a monotheistic faith in the received tradition from our Jewish beginnings. But if you look, you'll notice that these opening lines also refute Gnosticism because they talk about that God created heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible. They're trying to counter, they're countering this belief that the the Christian Gnostics had about a duality of worlds and that the material world was evil. and the, that the Christian Gnostics also felt that the God of the Hebrew Scriptures was not the same was, was not the same God. I mean, like literally two different gods, not the God we find in the New Testament. And then the Creed talks about the Son and the work or the role of the Son of, uh, son of God in God's activities, activity in the world. And this is the largest section because this is the place where there was always the most disagreement, the most not comprehension of what the Trinity could be. Uh, And essentially, this section is just a summary of what the four Gospels say about Jesus. But it begins with a very daring political statement. It says, Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, that means the emperor is not. So you can imagine, Constantine might have swallowed a bit when he, like, whoopsie, I might have opened up a real can of worms here. Jesus is the son of God. The emperor is not the son of God. And that was a name for the Roman Empire, son of God. In Rome's political system, the emperor is Lord. But for the Christians, Jesus is Lord. And then next we have the explanation that Jesus existed with the Father before all time, before any creations, that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father, of the same essence or substance of the, as God. And therefore, unlike, not of the same essence as God's creations. And again, they're refuting Arianism or any any of the... There were other views of Jesus about his humanity and divinity and which was he and how could he be both. And so they're beginning to address that also in this creed, but they don't address it fully in this creed. That's going to happen later. Um, now, here's where the language was pro- a problem. The Greek word for st- that we see in the creed as either substance or essence is <clears throat> homoousius, same, and then you have the ousius part is the hard part because there was no good word in Latin for what the Greeks meant by same what. But in the Greek mind, it, it was okay. They understood that things could be the same and yet kind of different. But Latin had no word for this. And so when they ca- said that God was the same substance, Jesus and God were the same substance, people were like, well, are we talking about stuff? you know?" And But anyway, it was the work of the Cappadocian fathers in helping people understand. And so the word homoousius was in which made perfect sense to the sense to the Greek side of everybody was a little tricky for the west to agree to but when they had the back story of what the cappadocian fathers meant by that then they were able to sign off on this word but even us in english it sounds weird when we say substance and most translations now have switched it to essence cuz an essence doesn't feel as chunky as a substance okay um Oh, the other reason that the uh, Latin-speaking side of the council wasn't too thrilled about the word homoousius, everything is in Greek that they're talking about, all the words, but that word does not appear in Scripture, homoousius. That was more of a scientific, philosophical word that the Greeks came up with. Every other word in the Nicene Creed is directly found from the Bible, and so that was another little problem for the West. And then in the creed, we get this snapshot of Jesus' life. Jesus is the divine one, came down from heaven but put on flesh, again, refuting um, Gnosticism and again, uh, the beginning of the understanding of Jesus as human and divine. The incarnate Jesus had a human mother, and they name her in the creed, Mary, a Jewish girl, a nobody. Now, there was not a single woman on this council of Nicaea. There was no, no women anywhere in leadership. But I uh, really appreciate the fact that they name Mary, the woman, the mother of Jesus. And part of the reason they do this so is also they're not imposing any cultural categories on this. They're taking their understanding of what does Scripture say about Jesus, they're retelling the faith in creedal form as they inherited it. Now, this next line, uh, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. This is an amazing line. It's, and I, when I say it's one of my favorite lines, I don't mean the fact that Jesus suffered, but the fact that they named Pontius Pilate. You know, in all I think I can say this safely. All world religions except for Christianity, the, di- the divine ones live kind of outside of time, on Mount Olympus, someplace you can't ever name or go to or anything. But our faith is based on an event that happened in a particular place at a particular time. And so these people were daring also because... Um, they name the Roman governor again. Remember, these are empire people. They name the Roman governor who put Jesus to death, and we it gives us uh, the actual. It's telling us God works in our world. God is present to us, and in specific times and places, we are able to see God at work a daring statement in many ways, naming the Roman who put our Lord to death and also saying our religion is completely different than any other faith out there. Okay. Hold on. Okay. And then it moves to the Holy Spirit. And we saw in the original creed, the Spirit just got one line, Here we see the work of the Spirit, the giver of life, and the Spirit's equal relationship with the Father and the Son. All three are worshiped and glorified. And then in the final section, we come to the work of the church, the church which was brought into existence by the Spirit. And then they end it there. No no cursing of anybody. (laughs) Now, notice that there are several things that the creed doesn't talk about. In my mind, there's some missing some things like love your neighbor, love God, maybe how we should treat the earth. I would have liked that if they had put that in there. But there are other things that they didn't put in there that I'm kind of glad they didn't put in there. There's nothing about any atonement theories. There's nothing about hell. There's nothing about taking Scripture literally. There's nothing about missions or conquering lands and people for Jesus all that at different times in church history have been important to some groups of Christians. So what that tells me is we, the creed is remembering, it's stating the faith the way they understood it as being, when it was handed down by the first disciples and the first followers of Jesus. Now, everything I'm going to say from now on is just my opinion and... Y'all can have different opinions. And, um, but I, I think, even though most of us don't know anything about the creed, I think we need it. I sometimes think that the very first creed that they made in Nicaea, the one that has the curse in it, is kind of like the Articles of uh, Confederation that our 13 colonies put together, Right? We needed something hammered out, we needed hammered out pretty quick, we had no idea how to be a nation. And so we found out when we tried to implement the Articles of Confederation, it didn't work, they didn't work that well. And we needed something stronger, something better. We needed a constitution. Well, for me, the Nicene Creed, the, sec, the one that you have there, is kind of like the Constitution of the United States. For me, uh, the Constitution of the United States, it's always there in the background. I know it's what makes us the United States, but I haven't studied it. I know a few lines from it. I'd probably be hard-pressed to recognize chunks of text if somebody said, what document do you think this is from? I'd be, I don't know. We all don't always agree on what the Constitution means. We sometimes think it should be changed. We interpret different sections of the Constitution differently. But we need it we rely on it. The Constitution has sort of created guardrails for our nation. Well, for me, the Nicene Creed does the same thing for the church. It's a necessary starting point for understanding. It lays the foundation. But I agree, the creed is also limiting in some ways. To read the creed is like reading just the plot of a story, right? Just the plot points. And that plot is missing all the details, all the nuances, all the scenes. It's missing the, the heart of the story, the, those lines in a story that you return to again and again because you find the story so compelling and intriguing. Um, a doctrinal statement like the creed, and uh, yeah, we go, is a lot like this. It's like a chart. It's just, it's information, this is the Trinitarian shield. Uh, Brian showed it to us the first Sunday when he was talking about uh, the Trinity. This shield is was most likely created in the Middle Ages. And the fact that it's on a shield also tells you something about the people who were thinking about, you know. It's it's a more it's a martial instrument. I mean um, but when we do creeds or charts, or diagrams of the Trinity, or of our faith. It feels like we're boxing the faith in. There's more to the Trinity than just the words we use to try to explain it. And sometimes I think, and other people thankfully agree with me, that other mediums can be more appropriate, more accessible, like poetry, which invites Contemplation and an imagination and participation as you try to understand what the words mean. So I've got a poem up there, yeah, and I'm going to read it. This, I did not, this is written by Malcolm Geit. He's, I think, a, somebody in the Church of England. In the beginning. Oh, it's a poem about the Trinity. <laughs> in the beginning, not in time or space, but in the quick, before both space and time. In life, in love, in co-inherent grace, in three and one and one and three, in rhyme, in music, in the whole creation story, in his own image, his imagination, the triune poet makes us for his glory and makes us each the other's inspiration. He calls us out of darkness, chaos, chance to improvise a music of our own, to sing the chord that calls us to the dance, three notes resounding from a single tone, to sing the end in whom we all begin, our God beyond, beside us, and within. And so this is my commercial for Wayne next week because Wayne is going to show us this other way of looking at the Trinity, relating to the Trinity, And we owe some of what Wayne is going to say next Sunday to those Cappadocian fathers.